Welcome to Ion Franchising. Are you looking for business opportunities? Well, you are in the right place. We represent over 650 franchises and business opportunities. We will help you find your perfect franchise for free. We even have a free assessment on our website that will help us determine what the best business is for you based on your investment level, mindset, skill set, and life experiences. This is Ion Franchising, where we share our vision for your franchise future. I'm your host, Lance Growlick. Each week, we will speak to fascinating folks from the world of franchising, franchisors and founders, franchise funders, and franchisees. Are you looking to find your perfect franchise? Or perhaps you are an independent business owner looking to grow and scale your business by setting up a franchise. Either way, our team can help you. Ion Franchising, where you will learn the A to Zs of franchising. Welcome, everyone, to another great episode of Ion Franchising. This is your host, Lance Gralick, and today, another very, very special guest. This is the first legal person we've ever had on Ion Franchising. And she is, uh, let's see, she's a dance teacher, but most importantly, she is a franchise attorney from Kent Dempsey Franchise Law, Amanda Dempsey. Welcome, Amanda. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be the first uh, legal guest that you've had on the podcast. And La- yes, ladies I first am- as well, besides being fantastic that you are. So here you are. Yeah, thanks so much. This is going to be fun. Well, tell me uh, a little bit about how Amanda Dempsey got into the world of law as well as franchising. Yeah, so uh, I like to say it's kind of a series of happy accidents. (laughs) And (laughs) so I guess the first, you know, how did I become a lawyer? That's a good question. So I was graduating college. I was a psychology major. I come from a family of psychologists. My dad's a psychologist. So I thought, oh, I'm definitely going to do that. And I kind of just did a heel turn and thought, uh, maybe I'll try something a little different. I wasn't really sold on the whole like researcher aspect. And so I said, let's, let's try law school. So I took a year, uh, I worked for a year between college and, and law and law school. And I worked for a legal department, uh, actually a commercial real estate firm that had a legal department just to see whether it was something I liked. And I absolutely loved it and went to law school instead of, you know, continuing on with my psychology studies. And I find that honestly, it's like pretty transferable, the skills that I learned as a psychologist, because I do counsel people literally every day, just in different ways. I counsel them about their business and not so much about um, mental health. So that's really great because a lot of those skills have really served me pretty well. And then with the franchising part of it, I graduated from law school at a really terrible legal market. And I was kind of just bouncing around for a little bit. I clerked for a year. I worked for um, a small firm. And then I started working for another small firm who had a partner that needed someone to work a franchise M&A deal. And I knew nothing about it. And I was kind of a green attorney. And that would be mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, yeah. So it was a large, um, I would say, actually, it was probably a mid-sized franchise company that was being purchased by private equity. And he needed someone to help. And I was, you know, kind of had time. (laughs) And I was eager. And so he's like, yeah, like, let's see how you do. And I have been blessed to work with Tom Kent ever since. So, um, yeah, he worked, started his career, uh, legal career in-house at Cotman Transmissions and always worked in franchising ever since then. And then I um, started working for, for him as a very young attorney and I've been working with him, for him, and now with him 
ever since. I love it. And I noticed, uh, I paid attention when you said the heel turn. You made a heel turn. So is that a dance move? Is that what that is? That's right. I do try to incorporate incorporate some dance lingo. Uh, I am a crazy person that works two jobs and I am a competitive dance teacher. Uh, I do that a couple of days a week after work, if you can believe it. So um, you crazy. people may have seen me and uh, my franchise friend, Ali Cross, doing some TikTok moves at one of the conferences. I'll just leave it at that. But uh, Love it. <laughs> I love it. Love it. It's nice to have some type of outlet that's not work. And so that's what I do with that time. Fabulous. Well, we have a lot to discuss today. So as I speak to people daily about business opportunities, franchise opportunities, it comes up all the time as they get closer. Should I have an attorney? Should I? And I said, well, yes. And they said, well, sometimes people say to me, I have an attorney. I said, are they a franchise attorney? Well, no, they're a business attorney. They know everything. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. Would you go to um, a heart surgeon to have them examine your teeth? <laughs> you know, I mean, at the end of the day, there are specialists in law. There's specialists in medicine, et cetera. So what do you say to that? You probably see that a lot, right? I do. Um, and I would say that's a great analogy. I mean, we all do have specialty areas in the law now. I shouldn't say everybody, but most people at this point, there's not a whole lot of generalists left. And it's because the law is complex, you know, just like anything else in professional services, there are areas that you can specialize in. What I tell people, and, and I do have many people that contact me and they say, you know, I have this family friend who's an attorney and I always use him and I, I may still want to use him, but just tell me what you can do. So I'm not there really to tell people what to do, but I will tell them, you know, honestly, that I can probably myself or another franchise attorney that specializes in franchise law can probably help them more efficiently and certainly more effectively. So we're very familiar with the documents that are required to start a franchise and what a franchisor must disclose to to prospects. So we're going to be able to tell you within the first five minutes of looking at that document, A, whether it's compliant or not, and B, whether this is a risky investment or not. That's not to say that somebody couldn't try to get themselves up to speed, but they're not going to be able to do it in five minutes. So I can do those things very quickly. (laughs) And efficiency in the law, certainly, I mean, for many clients will probably save them money because, you know, we're paid by the hour, generally speaking. So, you know, that efficiency is going to help. And then the other thing is like, certainly effectively, right? So, we have an expertise in this area of law. We're going to be able to tell them whether a certain offering is, you know, contains industry standard terms, whether they're reasonable given what we see out there in the marketplace. Right. And so, you know, those things are things that we've just been able to get up to speed with over time and really become experts in. So I generally do recommend that in this area and, and most areas, honestly, that you contact specialists and not just kind of a general business attorney. Exactly. So let's kind of dive in now. When it comes to the world of franchising, some people definitely, some clients of mine, when they first contact me, there are plenty of people that it's their very first time looking at a franchise business or even a business at all. And there are other people that are serial entrepreneurs in some cases have still never looked at franchising. Some people definitely seem to be a little surprised that franchising is regulated by the federal government regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. While in theory, that's actually very good that there is some regulation to it. I've compared franchising to licensing as a non-attorney, of course. I play one on TV. 
No, I'm just kidding. The but, books are uh, very helpful. The books in the background there. That makes yes, you look exactly. <laughs> I'm sure I have a book on it somewhere or 10. No, but uh, I explained to people, I said, look, like a, a typical licensing deal could be pretty loosey-goosey. It's about products or an individual item and not an entire system and, and not trademarks and all of these things. Uh, you know, So franchising, it's about exercising control so really everybody can benefit. I often equate franchising to any relationship, like, like a marriage. If somebody really wants a prenup, what does it do? It lays out what both parties are expecting and what everybody's responsibilities are. So without further ado, we're going to talk, we're going to dive into the, the components of what really makes a franchise system on the legal side. Obviously, there is a franchise disclosure document. An FDD is what some people typically refer to it because it's much shorter. And then you have the franchise agreement, which is the actual contract that's signed for the franchise. So uh, we're going to have a little fun right now because the <laughs> franchise disclosure document has 23 items to it, 23 items, sections, but they are called items. And we're going to sort of quiz Amanda and help her educate all of these listeners, all of you out there on all 23 items and really the highlights in 15 to 30 seconds of what each of these are. So Amanda, you ready? Do you accept this challenge? I do. I mean, so I do accept the challenge. I think I'll try to keep it as brief as possible, but I'll just say from the outset that FDDs are something that I draft every day, right? So I'm familiar with the items, but I do want to make the document as approachable for people as I can, which is why I'm agreeing to do this challenge. <laughs> it Approach it should not be scary. It should be, and, and it is scary. I know it is because I'll tell you that the very first time I ever had to write one, I was terrified. So I know that it can be intimidating, but it's really there to help a prospect make a great decision about their purchase. So whether the offering is for them and it's really there for them, it's not there as a barrier for them. So I really love that we're going to do this and break this down for people so yep. they can understand. And, and before we kind of put us on the clock doing this task, <laughs> I just want to also say as a disclaimer, I help people every single day because I've done this for almost 27 years now. I help people every single day dissect a franchise disclosure document. And then at the point that they're actually ready and decide that they want to go through the process of really pursuing this one particular brand, whichever brand it might be of the 700 plus that I represent and my team represents. And then the question comes, well, we should probably hire an attorney. Yep. Call Amanda. That's fine. Or <laughs> so, but there's plenty want. of, yeah, there's plenty of help. Now I, I always encourage people uh, because you want to know what you're getting yourself into. So here we go. Hold on All to your right. shorts. Let's so the franchise disclosure document, we're going to start right now. Item number one is. So that is the information about the organization of the franchisor and its parents, affiliates, and predecessors. So what that means is just the company that runs the franchise system, any of their prior owners, how long they've owned the system, who their parent companies are, whether they have affiliate brands, all of that information is going to be in item one. Perfect. And I uh, obviously, I have a cheat sheet right in front of me because <laughs> I do not know all of it by heart like you. So the franchisor company history is item one. Item two. Item two is the business experience of the principal. So those are primarily, the people that are listed in item two are primarily the people that you're going to interface with. So the people that run the day-to-day -day operations of the franchise. 
and their biographies are listed in that section. So it's a five-year look back, at least a five-year look back for each of the, basically the major players that are operating the franchise, training you, making decisions on behalf of the brand, stuff like that. So beware if you're talking to somebody that presents themselves as an owner or key executive and they're not in this. Yeah. I mean, the other important thing about item two is that anyone that's listed there also has, there's other places where they might be listed. So in the bankruptcy section, for example, or in the litigation sections, there are certain people that have to be listed in item two. And then there are other things about them that'll appear throughout the document. So it kind of gives you an idea of who you're working with. And that's always good to know. Exactly. Which brings us to item three, which is the litigation piece. Yeah. So the litigation piece, I always love when it's empty, but sometimes it isn't. And that's okay too. The litigation section, it discloses certain types of litigation about the franchise company. So if there's been franchisee franchise or litigation in the last year, if there's been any type of activity between a state examiner and the franchisor in the past several number of years, I mean, the, the time periods vary. If there's been any fraud or allegations of fraud against the franchisor in the past 10 years, that's in there. So there's several categories of information. It's certainly not every slip and fall, but anything that the FGC considers relevant to your decision to purchase a franchise would be in item three. And um, not all litigation is bad. So I always say that there's some litigation that's yes. good. Sometimes it shows that the franchisor is protecting its system and that's what you want. So it's, that's a good question, a good area to ask if you do hire an attorney to help you we can tell you, you know, whether that those items of litigation are areas of concern or areas of interest. I did have a recent instance where a prospective franchisee saw that there were a few pieces of litigation. And in both instances, it was franchisees suing the franchisor, which can be implied that, well, I guess it's better than the franchisor going after everybody, but <laughs> that's a whole other story. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it, it also depends. I mean, if you have a system that has 700 franchisees and there's two items of litigation, it's not necessarily a red flag. I mean, you can't please everybody. That's the same in all businesses. So there are sometimes disputes. It doesn't mean you have to run away if there's two unhappy franchises out of 700, but you know, it's, it's things like that, that you just have to consider as you're going through it. Not all litigation is bad. Certainly if there's none, then you don't have really anything to worry about. <laughs> Perfect. Item four. Item four is the bankruptcy history of the franchisor and then also of the principles that are listed in item two. And they have to be listed for a period of 10 years. Again, you know, I've worked with several brands that have bankruptcy history. It's not always bad. Sometimes I work with one brand that basically got into franchising because of a personal bankruptcy that they went through. They, you know, lost a job and they decided to kind of go after this passion of theirs. And then they were very successful and started the franchise. So it's yeah. not always a bad story. Sometimes it's a good story, um, but it's there for you to kind of assess one way or the other. Great. And item five, I happen to know is initial fees. Yeah. So I always say items five, six, and seven are your money items, right? So yep. <laughs> it's like a money shot. They're your money items. So the money shot. Yeah. So uh, item five is the initial fees that the franchisee needs to pay to franchisor before opening. So it's not every dollar that you'll ever have to spend to get this franchise up and running. It's what you pay to the franchisor. Generally, the initial franchise fee is listed there. And there may be some others like brand opening advertising sometimes shows up there. And if there's any like maybe like initial equipment package, stuff like that. So there's those are the types of things that appear in item five. And the key for that one, there's always like there's some distinguishing factors of each of these fee items. And the one for item five is that it needs to be paid before you open. I remember when I was with Wingstop, there was a decor fee. 
they'd have somebody from corporate come in and decorate with all the airplane parts back in the old days. Yeah. There are some brands that I represent that have like pretty significant, like initial package, like things that you have to buy before you can get started. And so the rationale behind that item is obviously you need to have that money before you can get open. So everybody needs to know like what that dollar amount is. so So item six were the other fees. And then item seven was the initial investment. Yeah. So item six is, uh, other fees. What that means is these are other fees that you will pay to the franchisor or that run through the franchisor during the term of the agreement. So this is where your royalty is going to show up. Marketing. Um, marketing fees, certainly. But there's other things that show up there that are somewhat, maybe people might not think about. Like if there's a technology fee that you pay, you know, maybe the franchisor has a vendor that they use for the marketing on behalf of the franchise for, you know, web marketing. Yes. If you have to pay that to the franchisor and it's a pass-through, it'll appear in that item. So it's, again, it's not every dollar you're going to have to spend but it's every dollar that runs through the franchise. Got it. Or to the franchise. Got it. And then the uh, initial investment is basically everything, right? Or supposed to be. (laughs) It is everything that you, so it is what the franchisor estimates you will spend prior to opening. And then also within the first three months of operation. So So it's your capital. Yes. It's your full initial investment from date of signing to three months after opening. And they, they say three months, some franchisors actually go further than that because they're giving three months as like a baseline of, you know, basically when you probably won't be turning a profit at least, or at least breaking even. So they use that as, as kind of a benchmark. Love it. You're on a roll. Item eight. (laughs) Item eight is restrictions. Yes. So restrictions on the sources of products. So this one is, is interesting. I think sometimes it gets glossed over, but it's a good one to read. So Item eight is where the franchisor explains restrictions that the franchisee will have to abide by with how they operate the business. The other thing that appears there is like the restrictions on where you can get certain things. So like where you can purchase inventory, where you can purchase equipment. Generally, franchisors have some type of control over the suppliers and the vendors that you use. So um, that information is going to be in that section. also. Let's go to item nine franchisees obligations. Okay. So item nine is really a chart that refers back to several sections of the franchise agreement that sets forth your obligations to the franchisor throughout the term of the agreement. (laughs) It's an easy reference, I would say, but I think a lot of people don't go back and look at those sections of the franchise agreement. So I always, one of my jobs as a franchise attorney is to kind of highlight what those sections are that are referred back to because You do have obligations as a franchisee that vary from site selection things and other things that are really kind of part of establishing the business, but then also there's kind of confidentiality requirements and non-competes and stuff like that. So there are sections in the franchise agreement that detail them and the chart in item nine kind of refers to that. Yeah, perfect. And now we're on to item 10 financing, if there is any. Yeah. So uh, item 10 is an interesting one. If the franchisor offers financing for anything, so whether it's equipment purchases or they finance the initial fee, all of that information will be in item 10. A lot of them are blank because franchisors might not do that. But if they do, they have to explain kind of what the financing terms are and whether they're uniform for everyone. Et cetera. And that's the key. This is specifically relating to any financing that the franchisor might be doing. Like you said, it could very easily be blank. Yes. A lot of times it is. Yeah. And item 11 Item 11 is a doozy. There's a lot there. Um, So (laughs) this one is a lot like item eight where it talks a lot about 
the system and system standards. The beginning of item 11 talks about what the franchisor's obligations are to the franchisee, both pre-opening and then also post-opening. So they'll tell you kind of what they'll assist you with and what they don't assist you with throughout the term of the agreement. And I always say, again, this one's long and people gloss over it. There's a lot in this item, but it's important because it does set forth a lot of kind of the day-to-day operations type things that happen in the franchise. So Franchisor's assistance is there. There's also a section that talks about kind of the computer requirements and all of the tech requirements that you have. And then one of the biggest parts of item 11 is it talks about training. So it talks to you about what the training program is going to look like, where it's going to be, who is going to administer it. I always say this is another one that's kind of a big one that people don't think about because sometimes training can last for days and it may be on site at the franchisor's location. So you have to, and sometimes weeks, not just days. Or weeks, yeah. Yeah. So especially in like restaurant concepts, it tends to be quite long. So I always tell people they just need to make sure that they're okay with traveling for that amount of time. And uh, there's an expense component to that as well. So I had a gentleman recently read an FDD before he ever engaged any attorney, of course, and said, I'm not going to training for 10 days out of state. Uh, It's not happening. And I said, well, that's probably not the franchise for you then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say, luckily, a lot of franchises have started to do more of like a hybrid, you know, online in person thing. And then some of them will have training at your location, which is really nice, like when you open. But I think just because of pandemic related things that people have gotten more nimble with that. So sometimes trainings aren't as long as they used to be. But I've definitely represented concepts where the training was sometimes it was like six weeks, because if you're like learning recipes and all of that, maybe they want to I was going to say, especially restaurants. Yeah, because you got to have to learn everything. So how to operate the whole restaurant. So yeah, good. It can be a lot. Item 12, the territory. This is another important one. Okay, I'm starting to say that they're all important. <laughs> <laughs> this is an important document, Amanda. <laughs> oh, geez. Can you tell this is how I spend my life? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to find importance. No, it, it is important. This one is... um. Item 12 is where the franchisor will explain what the typical territory is and what that territory means. So some franchisors will provide an exclusive territory, meaning they're not going to sell other franchises within a certain you know radius or population. Others have no exclusivity. I've seen more and more of that, especially as concepts come kind of work from home or they're you know, a remote service or something like that. Yeah. So it's just important because you just, you, you'll learn from day one, basically what the territorial protections are going to be and basically how friendly your neighbors might be and how close they might be to you. And, um, <laughs> and there's Why? value in that. There's value in that. Cause if you're spending a lot of money and you have a very little protection, sometimes it doesn't, you know, it might not make sense. So that's, yeah. that's a good, that's a good one. I, I have some home services brands. They do like 75,000 or a hundred thousand single family residences within a certain income category. Cause so obviously it can get pretty specific. It absolutely can. And there's a couple of things to think about in that, like, you know, whether you can accept jobs from outside your territory, if you don't solicit them. So some of the territories are really just about where you can market and you can accept customers from wherever others like in a home services type business, as you said, they're probably going to be slightly more restrictive because they want the franchisees to, to have a bucket of people that they can service and they don't want, you know, franchisees crossing those lines, but so no yeah, it's just, point. yeah. So it's nice to just take a look at that and figure out how that's going to work because it does vary depending on the type of business and you want to make sure that you're not, you know, just to have no protection at all. Yeah. Perfect. Item 13 trademarks. One of my favorites. So this is the, the section that shows the franchisee, what marks are associated 
with the franchise. And when I say marks, that can be a logo, but it can also just be a name. It can also be a tagline. Sometimes it's just a singular image. Sometimes there's one mark. Sometimes there's 20 marks. Franchises vary depending on how many they have. One thing I do when I represent clients is I go on the USPTO database and I make sure that all of the marks that are listed in that section are actually active because if they're going to be licensing them to you, you want to make sure that they're protected. Some brands don't have a federally registered trademark and that's okay too, but it's just something to know and understand that there's had more vulnerability there with those marks. And it's, that part's really important also just because that's really the brand recognition is what you're buying, right? So you want to make sure that those marks are protected and the franchisor is doing their job keeping up with the, the registration and renewal of those trademarks. Wonderful. And item 14, kind of similar? Yeah. So 14 is patents and copyrights and confidential materials. Some systems have patents. I would say far less than the trademark section, certainly. But that section will also include things that they consider proprietary information of the company. So it may be like a recipe booklet. It may, the operations manual is usually considered confidential and proprietary. So it just explains, you know, whether they have those things and then what the protections are around them. Or the secret sauce. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Big deal. Big yeah, deal. it is a big deal. Absolutely. Item 15. One of my favorites actually is item 15. Yeah, 15 also very often gets looked over. Um, so 15 is the amount of time that you're required to dedicate to the business as the franchisee. Now, some people might think that's like a bit of a silly item because they'll say like, well, I'm buying a business. I'm going to be there full time. But that's not always the case. Some people right. that are investing in franchising really are looking for something that's part time or they want to hire a manager to operate it for them or they want it to be maybe semi-absentee. They're there part of the time. They can hire somebody to be there part of the time. So it's really important if you're looking for one of those situations, if you want full-time, if you want to be more of it, you want it to be more of an investment, you don't want to be there 40 hours a week, then you know that section is where that information will appear. So you need to take a, a good look at that and see whether the franchisor requires you to participate in the business on a full-time basis or part-time or et cetera. Wonderful. Yeah. Two examples of that fast signs and great clips off the top of my head. They want full-time owner operators. So mm -hmm. if you intend to be passive or a semi-absentee owner, those are not the brands for you. And item 15 will probably remind you of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Item 16 restrictions on uh, what the franchisee can sell. Yep. Yeah. So we talked a little about a little bit about this in eight, cause they're very similar items, eight and 16. Talked um, about hot dogs. Hot yeah, room. we did. We talked about hot dogs. So 16 is explicitly where they'll tell you, you know, what you can sell from the franchise and what you can't, if there are restrictions. So I have a really old school example, actually, this is a great one. So one of the brands that I represented, or that I have, I still represent, they had been around since the 70s. And there was, I guess, initially, they were permitted to have like those cigarette machines in their stores. <laughs> Oh, or you, gosh. you know, put in like, I don't know, a quarter or like whatever it was. Was there then, a pay phone too? Yeah. And like a pack of cigarettes would pop out, you know, so that is no longer permitted. They've moved away from that model is what I'll say. And so those type of things where you're permitted to sell. And sometimes it's funny things like, you know, some people might want to put a vending machine in their like skating rink or whatever it is, yep. you know? And so all of that stuff, at least references to that are going to be in that section. And they'll tell you, you know, whether or not you have the liberty to do that with or without the franchisor's permission. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Item 17, the renewal, termination, the transfer, dispute yeah. resolution. Yeah, so 17 is a lot like nine in that it refers back to terms in the franchise agreement that are very important. Some of them are 
basically your renewal rights. So whether or not you can renew the agreement, some people may not know, but really almost every franchise agreement I see now has a limited term of years. So it's not an evergreen agreement. You're not buying the right to operate this business for the rest of your life, for the rest of the natural, you know, somebody else's natural life. There's a term of years. And so there is a renewal component to the agreement. And that would be referenced in the FDD. And then they also reference you back to the section of the franchise agreement. The other two, well, there's quite a few big ones there, but some of them are the, the covenants, so the non-competition covenants. Almost every franchise agreement, I would say every, but almost every one that I've seen has some type of non-competition component to it after the expiration of the franchise agreement. So that's going to be their dispute resolution. So what method the franchisor requires you to deal with disputes with them. So some of them require mediation or you have to meet at home office before you can litigate. Some of them require arbitration as opposed to litigation. One of the most important things is the venue. So uh, sometimes yeah. they'll require that out of state for you. So you need oh, to just be aware home, of that. Home court advantage usually for the franchisor. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's some strategic component to that, certainly. If there's a personal guarantee requirement, that's going to be listed in 17. So again, a chart that people a lot of times don't look at in depth, but that's part of my job is to kind of go through that with everyone and, and explain kind of termination is another huge one, which I don't I think you mentioned, but I didn't. Ways in which the franchisor can terminate the agreement and essentially stop the business relationship. Especially if you don't stop selling hot dogs when they've told you to. Yeah. Or if you don't pay them or something. <laughs> or if you don't pay them. One of the questions I had on renewals, although it's not exactly automatic, it is almost automatic if you're paying a fee, if there is a fee, as long as you're in compliance, it is essentially almost automatic in some cases, maybe not from a legal, completely legal perspective, but explain that a little bit. Well, yeah. So renewal is an interesting one because there are some states out there and we can talk a bit more about this. Maybe we need to do a state rundown one time yeah. on this call, but there are some states that govern the franchise relationship and they do have prohibitions against a franchisor either terminating or non-renewing basically so long as the franchisee is complying with their agreement. So if they're in compliance with the agreement, the franchisor can't just say, nah, thanks, you know, we're done with you. Right. Um, especially in the renewal space, because you know, if the franchisee wants to renew and they're willing to kind of pay the fee and they're doing what they're supposed to do, it makes it somewhat more mandatory for the franchisor to renew them in those gotcha. certain states. And there are about 25 of those states, so it's not insignificant, the number of states that have some legislation around that. You know, in other states, it can be easier to non-renew. But generally speaking, so long as you are kind of complying and being a good community member within the franchise, generally franchisors want that continuity. And so they're going to, you know, work with you to renew. Got it. Number 18, public figures. You know, Troy Aikman was a spokesperson for Wingstop when I was there in the Wingstop days. So uh, yeah, that's got pretty to see awesome. Troy a lot. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, you know, I would say, honestly, probably about like 95% of franchises have nothing in this section. I mean, most of them are not advertising with celebrities, but if they have a spokesperson that's well-known or a celebrity, or I guess it doesn't have to be a celebrity, just anyone that really speaks on behalf of the franchise is getting a lot of press. Information about those people has to go in item 19. Yeah, I, I helped Fatburger on the corporate team a long time ago, and good old Magic Johnson was uh, yeah. was in that brand. In fact, in my room here, I do have the Magic Johnson Fatburger signed picture. Yeah, well, I I think Shaq is going to be at the IFA this year, so uh, I know Love he's it. doing. I know he's been associated with a few brands recently, and then has his own. So big uh, chicken. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
All right, so let's get to the best one. Item 19, <laughs> the earnings claim, financial representations. Yes. Show me the money section. Exactly. So item 19, I'll say even when I started doing this, item 19 was even different than it is now. So there's been a lot of change with item 19 over the years. The first thing I like to say about item 19 is it's optional. Franchisors don't have to do it. They don't have to include an earnings claim or include really any information at all about the performance of their units. So, But, but then they can't say anything about it. That's right. So if they don't include an item 19, then they can't talk about it. And so everyone should know that because if there isn't an item 19 and they start talking about it, then, uh, you know, you can file that away for a rainy day. There are strengths and weaknesses to having an item 19. I actually prefer that clients have them personally, because I think that it does having it there and having the parameters around it helps my clients, franchisors know what they're able to talk about. And then I also think it helps my franchisee clients in determining whether this is an opportunity that makes sense for them in a financial way. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to evaluate a franchise opportunity. One of them is obviously going to be fit culture fit. And I think that's very important. And you get a lot of that from the other items in the FDD, right. but the financial component and whether this is going to be what you want it to be from a financial perspective is going to come from item 19. And so, as we said, what's in item 19 is a, it can be a historical or projection representation of how the units, existing units in the system have performed. There's really no time limit on it. So they can, it can be several years look back. It can be last year. The franchisor can create that however they want. There are some parameters, of course, it has to have a reasonable basis in fact. So there, you know, it needs to be based on something, some data that can be proven, but they're going to craft for you some uh, representation of how, the system is performing from a financial perspective. And again, the important things are that if there's nothing there, they can't talk about it. And what is there is the only thing they can talk to you about. So if it's not there, they can't talk about it anymore. And so sometimes you'll see super robust item 19 with tons of information because then the franchisor can talk about whatever they want. And then sometimes you'll see very limited information because that's all they want to talk about, right? My favorite footnote to this is regardless, you can then have a validation opportunity oh, by yeah. speaking to existing franchisees and asking questions as part of this process, the, the franchise process. So Susie, you've been a franchisee of this brand for three years. You're making money. How much do you make? What are the margins like? And thankfully the franchisees are not bound by any agreement. That is true. The franchisees can speak to their financial performance, whether or not there is an item 19, just the franchisor cannot. So, you know, I even say in, when I have a client that's looking at an opportunity, if there is no item 19, I mean, they can contact franchisees and ask directly. They can ask the question. Some people are not as comfortable doing that. And so, you know, it, I think you should get comfortable with it real quick personally. Yeah. Uh, but some people are not as comfortable with that. So it is nice when there's at least some baseline that they can say, this is what's in there. And then, you know, maybe compare some validation reports with other franchisees to what's in there. Yeah. Some of the best brands do make it more comfortable for prospective franchisees because it's more of an organized validation process. They mm -hmm. might hand the entire list of franchisees over and simply say, call whoever you want. They're expecting that prospective franchisees will call and we're proud of our success. Sure. Certainly. I mean, the good ones will. And um, 
that takes us a little bit into item 20, but we can still, we can stay on item 19, but all that list of franchisees and all of their contact information is required to be disclosed in item 20. So it's usually in an exhibit because especially in systems where they have a lot of franchisees, it's quite long, but you do as a prospect, you do have access to all of the contact information for all of the franchisees in the system. And certainly one of my biggest tips that I give people when I represent them is to certainly at least cherry pick some names off that list and call because you want to get, you know, some happies, some lukewarms and some not so happy so that you know exactly what you're getting into from all aspects. I also say it's good to call people that are close to your location because they're going to be able to tell you how the brand performs in your specific territory and area. And that does make a difference in some brands. I mean, some brands are seasonal, Others, maybe it's just, you know, you don't know whether the concept, if it's a food concept, maybe it's regional. You don't know how it's going to perform outside of, of your area. So it's good to call those people, especially if they're going to be your direct neighbors, because you will probably work with them at some point and interface with them. So you want to make sure that those people are brand ambassadors and are happy to be getting a new neighbor. <laughs> but these are great tips. I love it. I love it. So item 20 is also a bunch of charts. And again, it's just, that's where you get the information about how many have opened and closed in the last three years. So you'll see trends there. Again, it's all dependent on how many units are there. I mean, you're going to see some turnover in these brands, no matter how many units they have, but certainly if there's like a 50% turnover in a year, that could be a red flag. So that's a problem. Yeah. So you want to just keep a look at, at that and see whether the franchisor is terminating a lot, whether the people are just closing voluntarily, whether there's been a lot of new openings, whether, you know, franchisor is really aggressive on selling right now. So yeah. they can tell you a lot of different things, but it's good information to peek at. You're so good. So financial statements, <laughs> back to that. Financial statements. So every franchisor has to provide, depending on how old they are, at least a balance sheet, second year of operation audited balance sheet, and then third year of operation, full audited financial statements. I always leave that up to the accountant to look at, but it does tell you kind of the cash flow of the franchisor and kind of where their money is coming from um, and where it's going. So yeah. I always like to look at that. I mean, I like to see kind of, again, where it's coming from and where it's going. And that's, that's kind of the most information that you can ascertain from it, but there's some good things to see there. And, and they do have it typically as a three-year look back. Perfect. And then as we wrap up, we have item 22 contracts. Yeah. So these are all the contracts that you're required to sign throughout the term of the agreement. Sometimes it's like a software licensing contract. There may be um, forms of general release for when the uh, contract ends. So they, they just provide you with the forms so that you can see what they look like and you know what to anticipate telephone listings, confidentiality agreements, all of that stuff that the franchisor might require you to sign as a franchisee. The franchise agreement is the biggest one, of course, but there's some others that might appear there as well. And uh, the forms of those agreements are all attached. And item 23, the fun one. It's an easy That's one. the receipt. So I always say item 23 should be item one. I don't know why it's at the end. It's the very first thing you have to do. <laughs> so funny. But what you do is there There are requirements. The FTC has requirements about how long a prospect must be given to read the FTD before they have to sign the franchise agreement and provide funds. So it's at least 14 days. Some states regulate over and above that. So when you get the document, you sign the bottom and you put the date on it of the date that you received it, not the date you read it, but the date you received it. And then you keep one for your records and give the franchise or the other. And it's just important to kind of start the clock ticking on that 14-day waiting period. I would say most people take longer than 14 days to get through the initial read and meeting with business advisors, et cetera. But you have to get the accurate date on there. So it's the very first thing you do. And it's the very last item of the FTD. <laughs> 
Well, and that concludes the FDD rundown. Wonderful. Ah. MC, all 23 items of the FDD. Not too bad off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did that perfectly. Let's continue a little bit. So after all this, you know, we had to get, have you give the rundown because so many people have never really heard about each of these items. So I tell people all the time, there are people that come to me and they're like, I don't know if I should start my own business or I don't know what I should do. I've looked at MLM, you know, multi-level marketing. I've looked at this. I've looked at that. And I always tell people, if you don't have an original idea that you think needs to be born, like Facebook or McDonald's or Wendy's or whatever it might be, there were founders associated with all of those particular brands I mentioned. If you don't have an original idea, franchising is amazing because of the systems and procedures and what have you. And somebody's already really done the hard stuff. So what say you, the legal mind, the legal eagle, the award-winning franchise attorney, what do you really tell people? You love the industry that you're in. So why? Yeah, I do. So that's interesting. I mean, one of the things I do love about work, so I work with both, you know, franchisors and franchisees. And one of the things I love about working with emerging franchisors is you get to hear about all of these cool new ideas, right? I get to take these ideas that they had or these concepts that are like killing it in the market in which they work and really help them expand it nationwide and sometimes internationally, right? So that is kind of the hallmark of franchising is that it's people with an entrepreneurial spirit. And as you said, some of them are the idea people and some of those are the execution people. So if you're the execution guy, right? If you know how to run a business and there's a concept that speaks to you, again, you don't have to reinvent that wheel. Like somebody has that concept and maybe they need you, the execution guy to help them, you know, kind of make this thing big. And so in a lot of ways, I compare it to the arts and creativity because it, there is a creative component to being a franchisor for sure. You have to have something unique that is different and scalable and, you know, competitive. And but, you have to have a secret sauce. Yeah, but everyone needs the execution guide too, right? So if you have a history in business or if you just have a knack for it, franchising is great for you because you're going to take this formula essentially, right? This recipe, whatever you want to call it, and you're going to make it work. I mean, I've seen so many people that take a concept that maybe I wouldn't believe in, you know, I'm like, man, this thing's never going to work, but they're so great at business and marketing and development and hiring the right people and creating a positive work environment that they make this thing blow up, you know? And yeah. so those people are needed. Absolutely. I mean, you don't have to have the idea to be a good business person. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned emerging brands. How do we define an emerging brand today? Is it under 10 locations? 10? Yeah, I don't know. That's a hard question. I mean, so it's a smaller brand. It is. It's a smaller brand. I mean, it can be somebody that has, you know, an idea. It can be somebody that has a really successful regional concept and they're trying to figure out a way to break it out of the region. So it doesn't even need to be 10. I mean, I've seen some like probably upwards of 50 that I consider emerging because they're just they're kind of stuck in a way, you know, like they're trying to get past a certain hurdle. And so they're emerging past something, right? Uh, and trying to get to the next part. Well, a lot, uh, a lot of it probably is also based on regions. There are some brands that might have 50 units and they're in the same state. They haven't even gotten out of their state yet. Exactly. Or they could be, maybe they're in Canada or, you know, maybe they're, you know, they're super popular in Canada, but they're testing out the U.S. market or, or something. I mean, any other country. Well, I, I, I have a group in the U.K., you know, in England that has 40 locations and they're signing deals all throughout Europe and Asia and they have zero in the U.S. And they're, they're, we're now selling in the U.S. 
and it's an yeah. incredible brand. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it's different everywhere you go. And I think the vastness of this country, it can, I mean, it can be different just, you know, from state to state or region to region. So I think, you know, emerging is, it's all, I guess, in the eye of the beholder, but a lot of what I do is work with brands on all kind of aspects of that, depending on what side of the spectrum they're in. But if they're really looking at growth, we strategize with them. You know, how do we do it? What are your, what are your challenges? What do you need to overcome? Maybe it's us connecting them with the right person. Maybe there is something on the legal front that they need to, you know, more strict about, you know, maybe they're not enforcing system standards or whatever it is, but we do strategize with them and with their other advisors about, you know, how to get past whatever that hurdle is so that, you know, whether it's one unit or 20, they can really scale. So we've talked a lot about really the new or serial entrepreneur that now wants to venture into a franchise business and the FDD and the franchise agreement. What about, let's switch gears a little bit. What about the other part of your business, which is the independent business that comes to you and wants to grow and scale through franchising? So, you know, I know that's really exciting for you because there's a lot of wealth that is certainly made there as well. So what advice do you have for independent business owners out there that have something good and they're exhausted? They're so tired. (laughs) Yeah, that is so hard. That's a hard place to be, right? Where you're talking to somebody that's a great business person. They've got this great product or service and they're still doing it all themselves right and they just they want to figure out a way to grow this thing and not be the only person that's doing it you know they need to stop flipping the burgers and they got to get other people in there to help so i will say one thing that i do as part of my business is i certainly work in franchising but sometimes people come to me and they don't want to franchise for whatever reason (laughs) they're interested in scaling their business in different ways and so i consider my practice franchise and distribution and so I do kind of strategize with clients about what the best model for them is. So franchising can be part of it, but it can also be, I don't know, distributing through grocery stores or uh, partnering with people, joint venturing. Car dealerships. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways of doing it. There's not only one way. And so we we try to pride ourselves on being kind of solution people, you know, solution-based strategies for clients. And a lot of times that involves franchising as at least a piece of the puzzle, but it doesn't have to be the end all be all. <laughs> some things I bring this up a lot, but there are some businesses that, you know, really there's a key man problem, right? Like if they're only successful because of the charismatic, you know, guy behind the bar, is that scalable through franchising? Is that, can you replicate that concept? And so these are all questions that we have for people. And if the answer is no, there may be other options, right? And so we just kind of, they have to systemize. They have to be able to package what it is that they are selling and be able to replicate it. So we work with them to do that. And, And the FDD is part of that process for sure, because just preparing that document alone helps clients figure out what it is that they're doing, getting around their brand identity. And actually the firm in which I work has a separate affiliate company that actually works with clients, both franchise and otherwise, on cementing their brand, right? They do a whole brand, I don't want to say overhaul, because it's not necessarily changing the brand, but it's teasing it out, right? And helping clients really nail down what that brand is. And so that's really an exciting part of our platform at the firm. And we love working with those folks to kind of do that for our, you know, emerging clients. I love it. So any final thoughts for today, anything we didn't cover or any final tips you want to share? Jeez, I don't know. I feel like we covered so much, but um, yeah, I mean, certainly I'm just happy to be here and to talk with you. I feel like we 
the time goes fast whenever we do. Um, we have so much to talk about in, in this industry in which we love so much. Yes. So, um, yes, please, you know, anyone that's listening, if you have other questions for me or if I got one of the items wrong, I already think I might've messed up eight a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't. It's not possible. <laughs> but if I did, I'm admitting it, you know, and I would love to hear from anybody that's listening. Please do let me know um, if we can talk or if you think that it would be, you know, helpful to you to, to meet with me in some way, even if it's just, we'll you know, that. networking, et cetera, that would be great. We will make that connection for sure. So Amanda, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. And uh, until next time, because we'll definitely have a part two. Yeah, we have to. There's so much to talk about. Thank Thanks you so, so much, much for being here. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening today. Please like, follow, and subscribe so you don't miss anything here at Ion Franchising. Visit our website at ionfranchising.com, E-Y-E-O-N, franchising.com, and complete our free assessment so we can assist you in finding your perfect franchise. This is Lance Kralik. Until next time.